Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. It's a brisk winter day, and Zahir and I have taken a little stroll down Hicks Street in Brooklyn Heights. We took a right on a street called Grace Court, a quaint little dead-end street, and now we're standing in front of number 31 Grace Court, a sort of imposing gray residential building that was the last American home of W.E.B. Du Bois. And, you know, standing here, there's no marker indicating that this is where Du Bois lived, but I'm still in such awe of sharing this kind of space that he once shared. Uh, because Du Bois was the preeminent black intellectual of the 20th century. He was not only a scholar, he was an artist, an activist, a philosopher, and a humanitarian. And yeah, it's just, there's nothing out here that would indicate what an important location this is. And indeed, this part of Du Bois' life when he lived here in the 1950s and 60s is really the, the least known part about his life. And, and that's the story that we're going to explore in this episode. The more you look at uh, the life of this man, the more in its great variety and its clarity, the more it is emblematic of the problems and the, the promise of, of a people. Dr. Du Bois and his wife Shirley Graham Du Bois, um, some writers like Ossie Davis, uh, like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of people from that generation you <laughs> that you might remember. Uh, we, we got together and decided we're going to try to start this idea of a black political and art quarterly. In the vast throng of 250,000 people gathered before the marble Lincoln Memorial, when the announcement of the death of Dr. Du Bois was made, and a vast silence ensued. A woman was overheard to cry out, it's just like Moses. He was not given to enter the promised land for myself. I have wondered if she was right. Perhaps not. For in a sense that he coveted, he saw and entered the promised land. We're thrilled to have David Levering Lewis here with us today to tell us a little bit about Du Bois and give us some context for his time in Brooklyn. So Professor Lewis is the Julius Silver University Professor and Professor of History Emeritus at NYU. We're so excited to be sitting here talking to you today. Thank you. No, it's nice to be here. Uh, and uh, we're not in Brooklyn, uh, but um, it would be nice to be there too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get you back. <laughs> so Professor Lewis... People may have heard the name W.E.B. Du Bois, but 
But for the lay person who doesn't know him or doesn't know much about him, who was he? What What are a few things you would want our listeners to know about W.B. Du Bois? He founds the is one of the founders of the oldest civil rights organization, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Uh, and he is the editor, founding editor, of, I think one of the most remarkable uh, progressive reviews uh, in, in the canon, the, the crisis. And it becomes, in many ways, the, the Bible for a, a class of people he himself uh, identified, characterized, somewhat pref- uh, controversially still perhaps, the uh, talented tenth. These were people who had a certain degree of uh, independence, uh, professional skills, uh, some college education or more, and probably more northern than southern. But for so many people who aspired to become part of the the American promise, uh, the monthly receipt of the crisis was really quite formative for them. And, of course, he writes what is, I suppose, the pivotal pronouncement of what it means to be uh, black in America, the uh, souls of black folk, followed up by some 20 other books uh, during his uh, long and productive life. He um, spends a great deal of time in the uh, on the left, I, sh- I should say, uh, and it's a, uh, an evolution that is rather complicated. He is one of the first uh, Americans to see the Soviet Union in the uh, 20s, and uh, the man who said that he had seen uh, he had seen Russia and had seen the future and that it works would have uh, represented Du Bois's uh, reaction uh, to uh, the Soviet Union. Many people detect that after World War II, there is a uh, a fork in the road ideologically. You're either with America or you are against America. And we have, of course, a superstructure to uh, to police people. And for Du Bois, this is absurd. Other people tremble. They change their coats. Uh, they uh, the NAACP his. Uh, uh, his child, uh, having been very progressive, uh, shrinks in the heat of uh, of the Cold War, and we have a kind of Cold War civil rights replacing uh, the rather open uh, and progressive and internationalist uh, NACP that existed uh, during the 40s. But for Du Bois, this is sad. He goes his way, and everybody else uh, makes sure not to follow him. Finally, of course, he finds himself in Brooklyn. When most people think of Du Bois, they don't think of Du Bois as a Brooklynite. How did he happen to end up in Brooklyn? He gets there uh, really because he gets himself into a lot of trouble. There was something called the Arts, uh, Sciences, and uh, Professions uh, group uh, in which uh, Albert Einstein and uh, a good number of uh, iconic personalities were involved. All of this to uh, argue that uh, the face-off between the Soviet Union and the United States was a great mistake, uh, uh, that it uh, uh, served uh, the military-industrial complex, uh, that the Soviet Union, for all of its uh, geopolitical uh, activities, uh, was not a threat to uh, the world order as much as perhaps our own people. 
that, that was entertained as a fair, controversial uh, position until about 1950, uh, when the Korean War was another fork in the road. And uh, Du Bois uh, believed that really now the imminence of war was existential. There was a, um, a Stockholm peace initiative, and it uh, circulated uh, quite um, vigorously in Europe, and it crossed the Atlantic, and Du Bois became one of the agents of the distribution of the, 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 the Stockholm peace uh, uh, initiative, and it garnered something like two million uh, signatures very quickly. Well, this was serious business. The Korean War is just uh, gearing up, uh, underway. The then Secretary of State, uh, Dean Acheson, condemned the peace, uh, the Stockholm Peace Initiative, as simply a cover for Soviet exploitation and a very wrong-headed thing. Surprisingly, the next day, Du Bois uh, sanctioned uh, the, uh, the Secretary of State, condemned him uh, uh, in uh, unequivocal uh, terms. Well, that did get the attention of uh, the, uh, uh, the, the equivalent of uh, the, uh, what is it? Uh, today it's the uh, Homeland, homeland uh, Security, uh, security uh, equivalency then, meaning, of course, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI uh, and Du Bois was... Uh, uh, told that uh, he needed to register as a foreign agent uh, because of his behavior. I said, well, this is absurd, but there was a grand jury indictment, and Du Bois then was to uh, be indicted as a foreign agent. Now, what had happened was that his uh, wife of a lifetime had passed recently, and uh, Shirley Graham, uh, who was a gifted um, musician and dramatist and uh, uh, also a, a major progressive. Uh, she advanced her claim on Du Bois, as it were, <laughs> and she said, oh my goodness, we have to get married. Uh, I need to take care of you. I mean, this is serious business. And so she did. Uh, they married uh, before heading for Washington for the preliminary proceedings. She sold her house in St. Albans, and with the proceeds, she purchased a house uh, in Brooklyn. And that house belonged to Arthur Miller, uh, the celebrated uh, playwright. There was some concern about the fact that this house, 31 Grace Court in Brooklyn Heights, a uh, lovely place uh, had an occupant uh, mm -hmm. that is a, a a banker family on the uh, on the first floor but as can happen in quick real estate transactions there was some misunderstanding uh, about that family evacuating and it was ill disposed to do so anyway the house has been purchased the indictment has come down uh, they fly off to washington uh, there's a preliminary hearing, and then uh, go on their honeymoon to the Bahamas. Uh, and uh, Du Bois, uh, who's a great swimmer, uh, swims great distances and what have you. Uh, and they w was uh, there anything Du Bois couldn't do? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, 
Yes. He well, swam to the Bahamas. I feel like a complete failure when I read about well, the you know, uh, uh, Shirley, uh, it said uh, when they returned from the Bahamas, she said, you know, it was a real, it was a real honeymoon. And so this wasn't just an arrangement. Wink, wink. She wanted wink. to make that clear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, but then, of course, in the serious business of the indictment, and when they returned to Brooklyn, the occupying uh, family had not been aware of just who the new purchasers were. And so uh, Shirley says, well, I'll take care of it. And uh, she presents herself and she says, well, you know, we've purchased the house and we really would like the whole thing. And and, uh, Mr. Davenport, I think his name was, says, well, oh, no, 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 this is, uh, you'll have to consult my attorney. And he says, by the way, who who is your husband? And she says it's it's a, a doc. It's a William Edward Burkhart Du Bois. And he says, oh, th- that's not possible. Uh, that that man went to Harvard, and uh, and I had to read his book as a uh, as a freshman. Uh, and she said, yes, it's the same uh, person. He says, oh no no wait a minute, uh, wh- he's alive. She says, he's my husband. He says. You mean, really? So he turns, Mr. Davenport does to his wife, and he says, Dear, we will have to leave. Dr. Du Bois has, is the purchaser of this, indeed. Uh, I love that story. story. I love that story. <laughs> that is so Now, I'm not sure that Mrs. Davenport. Yes. I didn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> I did not read that book, honey. <laughs> Calm right. down. No, no. She, she, but, but there we go. Uh, she, she acceded to her husband's uh, decision clearly. And so the Du Bois is moved into 31 Grace Court with the Biedermeyer furniture and the great piano that Paul Robeson will play regularly. At Brooklyn Heights, uh, and they will be there for uh, 10 years, the trial begins, and um, the judge says, Judge McGuire, I think his name was, he said, I'm not letting this uh, case uh, go to the jury uh, because uh, it makes no sense. He is being charged with a behavior on the basis of if it looks like and acts like, then it is. Mm. And that is supposition Mm. that cannot be sustained. And so it's probably the only significant Cold War Mm. trial Mm. that leads to acquittal. But it's not a win because his passport is taken away from him. Uh, And so he has to stay in Brooklyn, and (laughs) (laughs) there he will. Uh, And uh, uh, it's a... uh, a life very much on the left. The uh, it, it becomes, I suppose, the most significant address in Brooklyn for a time, uh, because of course the United Nations delegations are not far, and to visit Du Bois, the Indian delegation, the uh, Chinese, Czechoslovakian, the Chinese, the Russian, and so there's a constant stream of visitors. Uh, across the bridge uh, to bringing vodka and various things to the Du Boises, and they had a wonderful garden as well. And this drives J. Edgar Hoover and the Justice Department insane. Uh, and so the uh, State Department rules that delegations cannot go to Brooklyn to that address. <laughs> After Andrei Vyshinsky, the Russian uh, foreign minister, 
uh, visits and for a very pleasant evening with his children. And that was it. No, no more of that. What would have drawn them to Brooklyn at this time? And, and what, would, what would their everyday life have, have been like there? There is, as, as we know, uh, a discovery, uh, a photographer who spent time in Brooklyn during uh, the Du Bois's uh, sojourn uh, and uh, the uh, David Atty uh, collection of photographs uh, captures Du Bois uh, both uh, leaning uh, against his, uh, his uh, mantle piece in his uh, salon, and then I believe also in, in the, the the garden with his wife. Uh, with yeah. his wife, mm-hmm. and it, it's just perfect that he that's Du Bois, uh, pure and simple. However, this is a time when Truman Capote is resident. I gather, except for a conventional ex- exchange of hello and how do how do you do, there's not much more to be said about the relationship between the uh, two men. The uh, locals certainly made their way to uh, the Du Boises. Christmas parties were notable. Uh, One in particular uh, was when the Rosenberg children were given a wonderful uh, Christmas party, uh, and at the end of it came uh, their new parents, uh, the Mirpoles. And so they departed uh, Grace Court with their new life, uh, and the Mirapoles, and uh, it uh, was with the Du Boises as, as uh, foster parents, uh, a real moment. And, and just in terms of connections, the Mirapoles, Abe Mirapole is one who wrote Strange, Strange uh, Fruit. Yes, yes, the musician who wrote Strange Fruit, which, of course, uh, was always remembered as being sung by Billie Holiday, mm-hmm. whoever else uh, sang it. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about how he came to leave Brooklyn for good. Uh, in 1958, the Supreme Court restored passports to Du Bois and Paul Robeson. It was the famous Rockwell, Rockwell Kent uh, decision. And so the Du Bois, du Bois is left immediately and uh, did the globe. They went uh, straight to Paris, then on to the Soviet Union. Uh, and then on to China. While in, in China, an interesting thing uh, happens. Uh, the reception is extraordinary. Uh, Mao Zedong uh, decreed that his birthday would be uh, a national holiday. And so, uh, so it was. That done, he sees his tailor at Savile Row uh, in London, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was smart. He was an activist, and he could swim, and he was dapper. <laughs> he was very dapper, and and then they returned to Brooklyn, and there they will be until the eve of his ninety third birthday, February nineteen sixty one. It will then have been ten years when he receives a telegram from. Kwame Nkrumah, the then president of Ghana, saying that all the things that we've been working for now have come to pass. And there is now an encyclopedia of the Negro enterprise established, funded, and we await your arrival. And so they off to uh, what is now Kennedy, and uh, it's a very poignant uh, departure, and they fly off to Ghana. 
uh, farewell, Brooklyn. Do you think he knew farewell, farewell, farewell in the back of his head? You, you could imagine uh, him wanting to return as uh, the civil rights uh, movement really mm-hmm. gets into high gear. Well, that's a counterfactual. He's got two more years, maybe two and a half to, to, to 95. And, of course, he's not really conscious on the eve of the March on Washington. He will die uh, hours before it really uh, gets into high gear. Uh, but the drama of it is, of course, that everything stops on the uh, around the tidal basin and 250,000 or 300,000 of his citizens stop and acknowledge his passing as uh, uh, Roy Wilkins pays tribute to him. And so it then uh, has the historical uh, appearance of the baton passing from the great old civil rights lion to the new man, uh, Martin Luther King. So, Dr. Lewis, you wrote the Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Du Bois, and the the subtitle of your of your book is "Biography of a Race." Tell us a little bit about what that means. I um, was conscious of the fact that it might have come across as a bit of hubris or as a um, objectification that uh, was was fallacious. But the more you look at Uh, the life of this man, the more in its great variety and its clarity, the more it is emblematic of the problems and the the promise of of a people. The second volume, uh, of course, has another subtitle, and it is W.E.B. Du Bois, The Fight for Equality and the American Century. And I meant that ironically because the American century was Henry Luce's century. And that's the century in which everything is judged by us and history serves our purposes. So to fight for equality in the American century is a tension, and it is a tension of Du Bois's life. And that's why he leaves, perhaps inadvisably, or perhaps precipitously and prematurely. Love this podcast? Then head over to iTunes and search for Flatbush in Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. We're doing things a little differently this episode. We're going to jump right into our Voices of Brooklyn segment. And we're really excited to listen to clips from an oral history of a remarkable civil rights leader named Esther Cooper Jackson. Esther Cooper Jackson was born in Arlington, Virginia in August of 1917. She is approaching her 100th birthday this year. If you have a chance, you should definitely listen to the entire oral history uh, interview that we have with her, which you can can listen to on our show notes. For the purposes of, of this episode, though, we want to focus on how her life intersected with that of W.E.B. Du Bois at a very critical time in his development and in his time in the United States and certainly his time in Brooklyn. In the early 1950s, Esther Cooper Jackson and her husband moved uh, to Brooklyn and she became a board member and activist uh, with the Committee to Defend Negro Leadership. 
And this was a committee founded to stand up for black leaders who are being targeted, uh, especially people like W.E.B. Du Bois and Paul Robeson, for their views that challenged the nation state. But her work continued. She became a founding member and managing editor of the magazine Freedom Ways, which was a magazine dedicated to art, black art and culture, and was an important source of news on the civil rights movement. Uh, she edited this magazine for 24 years and worked with a range of people, not only W.E.B. Du Bois, but people like Ossie Davis and others. You know, Julie, there are these times when you interview someone or you come across an oral history that needs very little annotation. <laughs> and Esther Cooper Jackson is so able to tell her story in a way that's that's really um, clear. Yeah, and she interweaves her remarkable intellectual and professional achievements with just the the honesty and realness of her life as a mom um, and a wife and somebody who's trying to juggle a lot of yeah. a lot of things and being drawn by a lot of different forces in her life and so I think we're gonna we're we're gonna have to give very little annotation to this um, remarkable interview with Esther Cooper Jackson. We moved to New York and I worked with. Um, uh, during the McCarthy period with the Committee to Defend Negro Leadership, uh, which had a headquarters in, in New York, uh, and was to defend blacks under attack during the people who lost jobs, people who were called up before the Un-American Activities Committee, etc., and including some people who were called black college presidents and or whatever. And so uh, there was that the organization was set up, the head of it was Dr. Ed McGowan, uh, a, a Baptist minister who at that time lived in New York, then he moved to Maryland. And so this, we organized uh, with literature, with uh, meetings, uh, with people uh, who would come up from Washington, like uh, uh, Mrs. Terrell, you've probably heard of, who, who, led this, who also was an early Oberlin graduate by the way, long before I went. Mary Church Terrell. Oh, yes. You've heard that name. Mm -hmm. People in New York say Terrell, but her people originally, we always called her Terrell. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and so she came up from Washington. She had already helped to integrate some of the stores in Washington. And, and so she spoke for the Committee to Defend Negro Leadership. Uh, Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee from the beginning were involved when they were young young actors who lost jobs because they couldn't of their position on a whole number of questions so they started performing in black churches and so forth for a while because they couldn't get jobs otherwise and uh, people like Harry Belafonte same thing happened to him as a young performer he couldn't get work mm -hmm. uh, so um, so we worked I worked in that com committee for some years uh, committed to defend Negro leadership and that was my introduction to working in Brooklyn. Dr. Du Bois and his wife Shirley Graham Du Bois, um, some writers like Ossie Davis, uh, like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of people from that generation you <laughs> that you might remember. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we got together and decided we're going to try to start this idea of a black political and art quarterly and so I agreed to work with them, help them start it for a year, to help them raise money 
to set up an office, to get an advisory board, to do everything. So for one year, this is what I did. Um, and um, we started the first issue of the magazine in, in uh, <clears throat> 1961, in the spring, the first issue came out. There was a big public event held at the Hotel Martinique, mm -hmm. uh, in which we had a blown-up copy of the first issue. And um, we had one ballroom, and so it was such a huge turnout that we had to have the hotel open up and, and extend the next ballroom. Oh. And it was though people were waiting, especially young writers and artists and educators, waiting for this. Um, and Dr. Du Bois and Shirley Graham Du Bois, his wife, were there. Ruby D. Ossie Davis, who were in it from the beginning. John Killens, the novelist. I don't know whether you've read any of his works. John Killens. And um, the main speaker was, um, I'll tell you his name in a minute, who was um, Patrice Lumumba's representative at the United Nations. And you remember what happened to him. Uh, but at there. Uh, I'll think of his name in a minute. Every, sometimes, with my memory, it'll go, and 15 minutes later, the name will. So I'll, I'll think of it probably before you go. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and who was the main speaker? Mm -hmm. And uh, we we um, began to sign up subscribers right then and there. And then there was a small event held at Dr. Du Bois' home, I think it's 31 Grace Court, I'm not sure, I'll check it, mm -hmm. Grace Court in Brooklyn Heights. Mm -hmm. And this was a house uh, which was bought, it got very inexpensively, it was Arthur Miller's house. Oh. At the time that he and his wife were breaking up and I guess he was going to marry Marilyn Monroe or something. <laughs> so, so he adored Dr. Du Bois, so, he, so they bought the house really, really, I think Arthur Miller moved to Connecticut. And, but this was his house. And uh, so uh, they moved into it and were there, there the whole time they were there until they went to Ghana. And it was a lot of space and he had a downstairs, he had just what he needed as a workspace because he never stopped working. Uh, and uh, so that's where it was. I think it's 31, I can check it, 31 Grace Court. Mm -hmm. And we had a party there uh, for all of the people who helped put the, the magazine together, um, and the writers and artists and interested people and some people who'd given money to get it started. And uh, we had champagne toast to the magazine. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, the head of, uh, as you know, had, had invited uh, Dr. Du Bois to spend his last years in Africa. And so um, he was considered, uh, Du Bois was considered the liberator not only of African Americans, but of, of the African uh, freedom movement. Uh, and so uh, he decided, he and Shirley decided to move there, then to spend the last years of his life. And it was unfortunate because it was just after we just had a year of the magazine and they continued to be in contact and he continued to write some articles for the magazine and and uh, Shirley continued as one of the editors for a while. Uh, before that she had also been an Oberlin graduate and then Yale, went to Yale in music. She'd done the combination 
uh, of liberal arts and music when she was at Oberlin, and then she went to graduate school at Yale. <clears throat> she'd done some operas, she'd done a whole series of books for teenagers, which my daughters loved. I finally gave them away to someone. Um, on Pocahontas, on, on uh, Paul Robeson, on just great, a whole series, you should look them up, yes. series of books for teenagers. Shirley, Shirley Graham, not Du Bois, she was Shirley Graham when she did. Mm-hmm. And um, so she was, uh, and, and then she had admired, she'd been married early and divorced and had two sons, and, and um, she'd adored Dr. Du Bois all of her life, so this was like, <laughs> she came, couldn't believe it. <laughs> so he was quite a bit, somewhat older than she was, you know. So, um, so they went to Ghana and, and uh, lived there for the rest of their life. W.E.B. Du Bois died in Ghana on August 27th, 1963, on the eve of the March on Washington. The man who gave Du Bois's eulogy in Ghana was actually a Brooklynite, a man named William Howard Mellish, who Du Bois had gotten to know during his time living in Brooklyn in the 1950s and 1960s. Now, Mellish has his own really interesting history yes, that are he does. chronicled in a wonderful collection that we have here at Brooklyn Historical Society, um, the John Howard Mellish and William Howard Mellish Collection, ARC.050 for you researchers who want to come follow up on this. Um, the Mellishes were the pastors for a church that is right next door to Brooklyn Historical Society, actually, the Holy Trinity Church, and Dad John and son Howard um, were the um, were the father and son who ran this church. But the Mellishes also ran in this really interesting sort of internationalist group of people, mm-hmm. right, Sahir? Yeah, that's right. And, and that kind of got them into um, some hot water. Yeah. yeah. Um, Actually, very similar to the... The kind of hot water that the boys got into. No, that's exactly right, Zaheer. And actually, the son, um, who was often called Howard, that his name was William Howard Mellish, um, was part of this very leftist group of people um, in New York at the time. And he himself took uh, was the chairman, actually, of the National Council for Soviet-American Friendship. And now from that name and from what we know of the Red Scare that marked American yeah. life in the 1940s and 1950s, we can imagine how this went over, right? Yeah, I think uh, maybe uh, some of our listeners might not be able to appreciate um, what the Cold War was like and what it meant to speak critically about the United States or even advocate for some kind of cooperation between the United States and its then rival superpower, the Soviet Union. Absolutely. And the interesting thing about people like Mellish and like Du Bois is their real, and I would describe it as intellectual interest in the ideas of socialism. And so for somebody like Du Bois or Mellish, this was not like necessarily an either or in the way that we in the post-Cold War era have come to understand the Cold War. It was about lessons that we could draw from societies and a real, you know, in some ways wrongheaded, we know it now know, but a real appreciation um, for the culture of the Soviet Union yeah, at the time. Yeah. And I think you said wrongheaded and some people will raise their eyebrow. Right. And I think what is, what is 
particularly important is the critique that socialism allowed people to have of how capitalism and especially racialized capitalism operated in the United States. And I think as we will listen to this eulogy, we'll hear how um, that analysis was really important yeah. to Du Bois in the final years of his career. Now, Du Bois kind of traversed this spectrum of approaches and analyses of injustice in the United States. Um, he began as a staunch integrationist um, advocating for reform and even agitation, making sure that African-Americans agitated and organized with white allies for voting rights and protections against lynching at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. And then he he kind of um, grew to understand the value of autonomous black institutions, which was a kind of more nationalist expression, and then finally ended up with a very clear critique of how race and class and gender intersected in in, in the United States, and and that found him sympathizing or understanding the need for a socialist or Marxist analysis. Yeah, and I think an, another thing that maybe often escapes us about the Cold War is the way that the structural racism that marked American society was weaponry yeah. in that war, yeah. right? Yeah. That this was evidence of the the problematic nature of capitalism. Yeah. And so what you see people like Du Bois doing, very bravely actually, because this was not an easy time to be, a, a, to be an oppositional voice, is to emphasize emphasize that structuralism yeah but toe this line of still being an advocate for american society but also sort of looking for looking for international models elsewhere and this was not a time where it was very easy to toe both sides correct so i think we're going to take a listen i'm excited about this because i think this might be the first time we've done audio in our in our into the archives That's segment correct. so it's a That's good correct. reminder to our listeners that Archives have audio, yeah. <laughs> lots of audio, not just oral histories, although our oral histories are wonderful. Um, and to listen to this, to listen to this eulogy. And we also have the uh, transcript because um, mm -hmm. it isn't always um, easy to understand in our in archival audio uh, recording. So and commit okay. to the time it takes, commit, yeah, yeah, to listen to it. But I think it's a great example of how the delivery of someone's message is just as as powerful. Um, sort of an, and full of information as the textual inf the textual words actually are. The eulogy that you'll be hearing excerpts from were delivered on Sunday, September 29th, 1963, in Accra, Ghana, at uh, Du Bois's memorial by William Howard Mellish. And this is a pretty long recording. Um, we'd be sitting here for hours if we listened to the whole thing. So um, Zaheer and I have pulled some clips that we want to talk about. It's largely biographical, but there is this sort of wonderful um, uh, through line of an, of an analysis of Du Bois's sort of intellectual trajectory. And we want to highlight some really wonderful aspects of that. The ethical and economic attraction which he had found in socialism in his early days now took on renewed and substantial strength. From Europe, he returned with two indelible impressions that increasingly were to mold the balance of his life. The first was the consciousness of the utter destructiveness of modern war, its futility as an instrument of social progress. The second was the conviction that a radically different mode of human social 
and economic organization was no longer just a dream, but now an imposing fact of history. His visit to the Soviet Union, he wrote, was for me a never-to-be-forgotten experience, and it strengthened my basic belief in socialism as the one great road to progress. So this clip is, I think, highlighting reflections that Du Bois had upon a, a series of trips um, to Europe that he took throughout the early 20th century. And this is one of the things that I really got from this eulogy and from talking to Dr. Lewis is just how international Du Bois's mm-hmm. life and experience yeah. was, right? And not just in terms of the travel that he did, but the ideas that he was sort of yeah. bringing into his yeah. philosophy of yeah. life. Du Bois was like the consummate learner. He was constantly uh, exploring ideas. I mean, he's certainly part of a tradition of African-Americans who traveled abroad and whose travels and exposures to other societies and countries expanded their imagination uh, for what was politically possible or should be politically possible in the United States. And I think that um, segment from Mellish really um, lays that out. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm struck by two things. The The first is just that 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 exposure it just cannot be emphasized in an age before air, um, before before mm-hmm. travel was really possible. It was just so rare for the majority of Americans. Yeah. And so that kind of richness brought, you know, a, a, a depth to his approach to things, but also in some ways might have alienated him yeah. from your average American yeah. black or white and the yeah. basic experiences of their lives, which were yeah. so local. Yeah. Hearing Mellish talk about Du Bois and, Du Bois is kind of emerging critique of the military industrial complex. I mean, there's a reason why Du Bois is like this um, reference point for so many scholars of, of black history and life today. I mean, it, there's some of his work is so prophetic is really the word that comes to my mind. And I think the other thing is that Du Bois was willing to go outside of the bubble. I mean, we, we talk so much today about even with having access, even with having greater mobility, um, how many people are willing to transcend the kind of prescribed ideas that they have. Yeah. With such a evolving sort of body of thought, there are aspects of his belief system that often don't get talked about enough. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, this hammers home that one of those is pacifism. I mean, he is at this point and actually an iconic scholar of pacifism and his critique of war um, and the role of the United States in sort of benefiting from global war is based, based both on the racism that is endemic to that and the economic benefit that it brings. Mellish really plays with this iconic line that Du Bois um, is really well known for. The problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. It's probably like his most quoted line. What Mellish does is he thinks about the way that this idea has developed. And so he actually quotes Du Bois coming back to this line many years later. And he, he let's take a listen to this clip. I still think today is yesterday, he wrote that the color line is a great problem of this century. But today I see more clearly than yesterday that back of the problem of race and color lies a greater problem which both obscures and implements it. 
And that is the fact that so many civilized persons are willing to live in comfort even if the price of this is poverty, ignorance, and disease for the majority of their fellow men. But to maintain this privilege, men have waged war. This gives us an insight into how lyrical Du Bois is. I mean, I remember reading The Souls of Black Folk for the first time, and this, of course, is the the Du Bois book that that are that is oft quoted, oft assigned, oft read, and um, each chapter opened with like lyrics from what he called the Sorrow Songs or Negro Spirituals, and it was just so beautifully worded, and, and that um, both obscures and implements it. I mean, how. That's that's in such few words just it's says the, so much. Say, it's the economy of it, yes, right? It's yes. like I mean, I just like as a as writers, like you can see somebody just sitting there and just trying to figure out the words. But this idea that that race and color can hide things, but then also are the tools by yes, which yes, a yes, you know a caste yes, system yes, is implemented yes, yes. is so so specific yes, and so yes, right on yes. uh, it, it's really just a remarkable I'm glad he yeah. pulled this good job I mean Malish. you know and his, he had this whole thing about one of the kind of recurring tropes in the souls of black folk is the veil and is just kind of like lifting up the veil I mean you know, he really defined for and has defined for so many generations of intellectuals and scholars and activists. Um, the, the work that you must do includes demystifying systems of oppression, right? Those systems which, because of their being mystified, are obscured and hidden, but are used as tools to implement oppression. I think it's so beautifully put. Du Bois dying on the eve of the March on Washington at age 95. Um, what There's sort of some poetry to that that was certainly not lost on his contemporaries and was not lost on um, Mellish in his eulogy to him. It is uh, the perfect way to close out our discussion on W.E.B. Du Bois. The news came to us dramatically. Miss Brewer, who has sung these beautiful spirituals he so dearly loved, and I were both in Washington, in the vast throng of 250,000 people gathered before the marble Lincoln Memorial, when the announcement of the death of Dr. Du Bois was made, and a vast silence ensued. A woman was overheard to cry out, It's just like Moses. He was not given to enter the promised land. For myself, I have wondered if she was right. Perhaps not. For in a sense that he coveted, he saw and entered the promised land. Zaheer and I are looking forward to some really wonderful events coming up over the next month. Zaheer, tell me what you are going to be participating in. 
As you know, Brooklyn Historical Society has been working on a project called Voices of Crown Heights in partnership with Weeksville Heritage Center and Brooklyn Movement Center. As part of that project, we're going to have a series of public programs. And on Saturday, March 11th, 2017, is going to be one of our uh, public programs, and it's going to be at Weeksville Heritage Center. And this particular form is going to look at the theme of education in the community. That sounds great to hear. So I'm going to be staying late after work um, on Thursday, March 16th, um, for an event that takes place at 6.30 p.m. that is honoring the legacy of Jane Jacobs. Jane Jacobs, of course, is sort of the seminal scholar of urban history. Um, If you haven't read her 1960 Death and Life of Great American Cities, you absolutely should. And so that night, we're going to have New York Times columnist Ginia Belafonte talking to Matt Turnour, director and producer of the documentary Citizen Jane, Battle for the City. Um, Also there will be Robert Hammond, who is the co-founder and executive director of Friends of the High Line, and Samuel Zip, who is a professor of American and Urban Studies at Brown University, and he's also the co-editor of a book. Vital Little Plans, the short work of Jane Jacobs. So if you have any interest in urban history, in the landscape, in the city that we live in today, in its past and its future, you should head over head over to BHS on March 16th at 6.30 p.m. Um, the tickets are $10, $5 for members, and we'll give you a link on the show notes um, where you can reserve your space. And with this episode of Flappish in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. Thanks to our guest, David Levering Lewis. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush dash Maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us at iTunes or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Our production associate is Andrew Caberline. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia. 